free from economic slavery. How much of your time and energy is spent chasing after money? Either spend chasing after it or worrying about it. Let me ask you this. How much of your self-image and what you think of other people has to do with money? Either, you know, how you see yourself, I don't make enough, or I'm way better than everybody because I make a whole bunch, or you look down on other people or you're jealous of other people. How much does money take up our time, energy, our thoughts, and affect our own self-image and how we see other people? This is a big thing, this money deal. We live in a capitalistic society. And I believe that this culture right here, the United States, 2018, this is the best we've ever had it in the history of the world. I love the United States, but there are some issues, there are some problems. I think this is the the greatest uh, culture as far as opportunity and, and freedom of religion that there's ever been. But we still have to grab hold of the things of God and understand our relationship with money so that it doesn't cause us to get sidetracked and messed up in our life. Because there are a few different things that if we get them wrong, it's going to cause us lots of problems. And our relationship with money is one of those things. So here's a question. Are... Our relationship with money and our relationship with God, two completely separate things that can't overlap, or are they involved in the same thing? Can our walk with God also include our relationship with money? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 10. And here we see some words of Jesus and some interesting things. Luke 16, starting in verse 10. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So when do you start doing the right thing? When you finally have something worth, no, right now. Doesn't matter what you have. Be honest with the little, work diligently with the little, because that will carry over into the next season if you get more. Verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, as I read that verse, I was thinking, what are the true riches? So if you can't handle money properly, who's going to give you true riches? Are there things more valuable than money? Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. We're going to talk about that as we go. There are things that are much more important than money in life, and We need to be able to deal with money so that it doesn't take those other things away. And so here Jesus says, if you haven't been able to handle a simple thing like money, how are you going to be able to handle the more important things? That's pretty interesting. Verse 12, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So he's saying, you got to take care of other people first before you're going to have the opportunity to have something for yourself. And then verse 13, very important verse. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So according to Jesus, can you serve both God and money? No. So let's quit trying. (laughs) And how do we do this? Well, we obviously, we're in church, so we must serve God, right? We serve God And then we can have money. In fact, if you can have money as a servant, that's going to be very, very helpful. But money makes a horrible master. 
God is a great master, a great Lord. We serve God. We want to have money. We want money to serve us. It should be beneath us. So, Jesus proclaimed the good news to the poor. Let's go to Luke chapter 4, 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. So Jesus comes to church. This is chapter 4 of Luke, so it's early on in the book. It's an early part of his ministry, and Jesus is just showing up for church. Can you imagine being the rabbi in the church service that Jesus is attending in the congregation? You know, I've always known that there are smarter people in the congregation than me. So I have to rely on the Holy Spirit to do good things, or else I'm going to be in real big trouble. But I can't imagine what it would be like to have Jesus come to church and just kind of be watching me talk. You know, that'd be a little scary. Of course, the Lord is present here with us, and that's why we pray. For the first about 11 years that I was a pastor, I actually prayed protection over the congregation in case I said something wrong. Now I pray for the Holy Spirit to show us what we need to hear each one individually, because I believe God's well able to do that. But here we have the good news to the poor. Luke chapter 4. So Jesus goes to the synagogue and he stands up to read. He's a volunteer at church. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That must have been quite a day. And Jesus said that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Here's where in Christian circles it goes one of two ways. It can go the way of well, guess what? You're just fine the way you are, so just be content. Or, God wants to help you get out of poverty. Which one is it? Well, honestly, it's a little bit of both, because we'll talk later about the secret to being content in any circumstance. But also, we need to be able to trust God to be able to get free from poverty, free from being unable to take care of ourselves free to be in a position to even help other people. So the good news to the poor is Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. Here Jesus is talking to a group, and he's talking to them about worrying about material things. Worrying about what they're going to wear, worrying about what they're going to eat, just worrying about material things. Matthew 6, starting in verse 31, says this, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows that we need those things. The basic necessities of life, He knows that we need that. Verse 33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God, seek the righteousness of God, and you can believe God for your material needs to be met. Now that's good news to the poor, amen? That if we seek God's kingdom and His righteousness 
first that these things will be added to us as well. I've taken Matthew 6.33 as a, a verse I live my life by and as a verse that I operate the church by. That if we put first, not what I want, not you know making sure that the budget is met or that sort of thing, but put first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. If we seek God's plan and we seek to do things God's way, then we can believe that the rest of it will get taken care of. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So in a little bit, we're going to go through our three steps that we've been covering through this entire series from John 8, 31, 32. We won't go over that again, but just the three steps. Hold to the teaching, which means know the teachings, believe in them and do them. Step two, that means that we start to know the truth. We learn by experience what's going on. And then step three, that truth sets you free. We walk into freedom more and more over time. We're going to apply those three steps to Matthew six thirty three later. But first, let's see if we can't settle this sometimes contentious topic. Does God want me to prosper or is that a bad, selfish thing? Is it okay for a Christian to seek to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? Or is that just selfish? Well, we're going to work through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 19 and try to get a good grip on this. Try to get... A hold on it because I believe there are extremes in the Christian world on both sides and we need to find the middle of the road on this deal. When I was a new believer, honestly, I believed a poverty gospel. I mean, it was a a gospel of Jesus has done everything for me. I'm going to do everything for him and I don't need anything to do it. I'm just going to go. And I found out that was very ineffective. And then there's the wrong prosperity gospel, which basically is just exploiting people's covetous nature and greed and and that sort of thing. And that's a mess. We don't want to be over there. So what is the right way to see our relationship with God and our relationship with money? So 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and a godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. So Paul isn't really holding back at this particular juncture. He's just letting it fly. He doesn't like it when people come into church and cause problems. And he continues, he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So, There's these people that are causing problems in church. They're causing all kinds of strife. They're quarreling about words. You know, they've got these little nitpicky doctrine things and they just want to fight with people over it. And then they're seeing godliness as a means to financial gain. Now, how would they get under that impression in the first place? That godliness is a means to financial gain. Maybe it was that time with the loaves and the fishes where they fed 5,000 people plus women and children with just a few things. Maybe it was the time when they fed the 4,000 plus women and children with just a few things. Maybe it was the miraculous catch of fish that Peter had or the other miraculous catch of fish that Peter had. Maybe it was the gold coin in the fish's mouth to pay the taxes. Or maybe it was the turning the water into wine. Or Maybe it was one of those amazing provision miracles that occurred over and over and over in the Scriptures. And they saw, wow, God really provides. 
That's amazing. We want that provision too. So instead of seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, they sought first the miracle provision of God. How do I get this stuff from God? What do I need to do? So that maybe was how they got under that impression. But if God's people were all poor and wretched and and really hurting all the time, why would they think that godliness is a means to financial gain? There's really no reason to believe that right? But if God's people are living out Matthew 6.33 and they're seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness and these things are being added to them, then that might be the clue to these other people. Aha, God takes care of people. I need to figure out how to get God to take care of me. But they're doing it from a wrong heart. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Did you know you could have both godliness and contentment? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, feeling like you're missing out on life, is not great gain. Godliness, thinking you're always going to be in lack, you're never going to get anywhere because, you know, nice guys finish last and that's just the way it is. So I always feel like I'm missing out, but it doesn't have to be like that. You can have godliness and contentment. Wouldn't that be a great place to be? Full of God and knowing you're living your best life that you could have. Following the Lord wholeheartedly and knowing you're missing nothing. Godliness and contentment is great gain. Let's read verse 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Would you be content with food and clothing? No car, no house. Be a bit of a stretch here in January. What's being said here to Timothy is Don't look at your material situation for the contentment in your heart. That's not where it's going to come from. It's kind of an odd thing to quote Jim Carrey in church, but here's what Jim Carrey said. He said, I wish everyone was rich and famous because then they'd know that that's not the answer. Then they'd know that just because you're rich and famous doesn't mean that everything's going to work in your life. There's a different answer. Verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That doesn't sound good. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is where we see some of the great dangers of things like greed, covetousness, and selfishness. Covetousness is being jealous over what other people have. It's seeing your circumstance and looking at other people's circumstance and being jealous of what they have when you don't have it. That's covetousness. We're not supposed to covet. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Greed. I've been thinking about how to define greed because I I just think there's an amazing concept here. Here's my definition that I wrote down here. A mental cloudiness that causes money and possessions to be overvalued. That's greed. Greed is when you give up things more important than money for money. When you give up things more important, more valuable than possessions for possessions. That's greed. Is it possible to give up things more valuable than money for money? You can give up your integrity. You can give up relationships. You can give up family for money. How many squabbles have there been over inheritances that have driven families apart? Is that worth it? 
People even give up their calling from God because it doesn't pay good enough. And they miss God's plan for their life for money. Oh my goodness, that's giving up things more valuable than money for money. So greed and covetousness, these are terrible things. But these are mindsets, not financial situations. Right? Covetousness is a mindset. Greed is a mindset. It has nothing to do with bank accounts. It has to do with your heart. Let's keep reading. So Paul's been talking to Timothy about how dangerous it is to have money be first in your heart, to love money. He's talking about all these dangers of running after money and getting pierced with many griefs and all these problems. And then he gives this instruction to Timothy, verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this. (laughs) Don't be running after those things. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame. So what was the command he was supposed to keep? To flee from all this covetousness and greed and running after the things of the world, but instead to grab hold of God's call on his life. So I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how long is he supposed to do that? Till Jesus comes back. Did he come back while Timothy was alive? No, so it's your whole life. So this same charge applies to us. We need to do this until Jesus comes back. Till the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So Paul says to Timothy, you don't go chasing money now. You follow God's call in your life. That's not all this chapter has about money. The next few verses Paul says to Timothy how he's supposed to deal with rich people in church. How do you think we should deal with rich people in church? Well, instead of guessing, why don't we just read what the Bible says? Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. So don't be arrogant. Don't view yourself as better than other people because you have more money than other people. And don't trust in your money because money goes here and there. You know what I mean? Like money can only do so much. And what if the stock market crashes? All that stuff. It's uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So we should command the rich people not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God, and basically to be thankful for all these fun things that they get to enjoy. So are the rich people supposed to put all their money in the missions fund? Not according to this verse. They're just supposed to be thankful that they get to enjoy some things. Isn't that interesting? Next verse. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So here again, Paul is saying to Timothy, help them to see that, hey, you got a good situation in this world. Well, that's neat. You know, that's good, but there's a life that's more important than this one. And make sure that they focus on that. Make sure that they're generous and willing to help out. 
But it doesn't say command them to get rid of everything that they have so that they can be as poor as anybody else. Just let them know that God's provided that for their enjoyment. In 2011, I got to buy the canoe of my dreams. A used canoe, but I got it for a grand, man. If you, if you know canoes, I got a, a Bell Kevlar carbon fiber canoe. It was just like two years old. Got it for like a third of the regular price. Man, I can carry that thing as old as I am, as far as I want to go. It's great. It's like 39 pounds. I was waiting since the 80s to get a nice canoe like that. Now, should I just sell that and give it to missions? Well, if God tells me to, I will. But till then, I'm going to enjoy it. (laughs) And I'm going to quote 1 Timothy 6.17. All right. So we want to enjoy those good things. So a few quick thoughts on biblical prosperity. Biblical prosperity, so not that false prosperity, again, like you just put enough money in the plate and God's going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Even if you can only give $10,000, let me tell you, God is going to bless you. I mean, not that. But if you give your life to Christ, does your life get better or does it get worse? It gets better. It may not get easier at the beginning. In fact, it might even be harder. Because you're going to learn discipline. You're going to learn how to put God first instead of just doing whatever you feel like doing. It might be a little harder, but it will be better. Because you'll be able to step into important things. You'll stop sabotaging your life and the lives of other people. And you'll start to see good things happen. When we give our life to Christ, our life gets better. When we give our relationship dynamics to Christ, our relationships get better. When we learn how to forgive, when we learn how to love people, when we learn how to put other people first, our relationships get better. When we put our financial life under Christ, when we submit our financial life to Christ, our financial life gets better. It's part of giving your life to Christ as your life gets better. It doesn't necessarily, again, get easier in the short term, but it gets better. Biblical prosperity is part mindset, again, being able to be content in any circumstance, and it's part getting things working. Let me ask you just a few interesting questions. How can you tell if a shepherd is good at being a shepherd? Simple answer is the condition of the sheep. If the sheep are in good shape, they're not bit, (laughs) they're not dirty, they're not skinny, you got yourself a good shepherd. Is Jesus a good shepherd? So what should his sheep be like? Now there are times where he'll call you to make a sacrifice in this world for the next. There are people called to be martyrs. There are people called to give tremendous sacrifices for the kingdom of God. But most of the time, we get to see the goodness of God in this life too. Most of the time. He is a good shepherd. He will shepherd us into Peace in our heart. He will shepherd us into good places. Next interesting question. Are Christians supposed to help the poor? Yes. Now, if you need somebody else to help you, then you can't help the poor. The Christians can't all be starving to death or we can't help the poor. If we need everybody else's help, then we can't help the poor. We need to have something to share in order to be able to help the poor. Is it selfish to want to have something to share? 
think it's interesting the way that we deal with these sorts of things. You know, if somebody worked really hard and came home with all A's on their report card, how would the parents react? Oh, you selfish kid, keeping all the A's for yourself. What are you doing spending all your time on that? Think about somebody else. For I mean, we wouldn't do that. What if somebody works really hard and, and gets a good paycheck? Would we be mad at them for it? What if they're doing that to raise money for missions or to take care of their family or to do things that aren't selfish? That's okay. What if somebody starts a business? There's a business in the United States today that has, from what I understand, has cut the time that it will take to translate the Bible into all known languages into a third of what it was projected to be 10 years ago. There are people donating millions and millions of dollars to translate the Bible Because they have a very successful business. Is that selfish? That's awesome. If they kept it all and said, well, stinks to be those people that can't read the Bible, then that would be different. But they're giving. This can be a stronghold for people. Because some people, they don't want to follow Christ because then they think they're going to be poor and in lack the rest of their life. I don't like it when people tell other people, oh yeah, if you give your life to Christ, your life's going to get worse. Demons will be unleashed after you and they're going to get you and you're just in real trouble if you give your life to Jesus. No, your life will get better. And you know what? You'll have a shield of faith to hold up to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. So you pick up that shield. Now, before you pick it up and you're standing there all silly, you know, and you're getting hit by the arrows, then yeah, you're going to have to experience that some, but then pick up the shield. Your life gets better. Again, Matthew six thirty-three. but seek first. So what's the first thing we seek? Is it money first? Well, once I get my bills paid, then I'll go to church. You know, once I get my finances figured out, then I'll care about Jesus. No, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Step one, to hold to this teaching means that we need to know what it is. We need to believe it and do it. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then we trust God to take care of our needs. Seek first his kingdom. So what does it mean to seek first his kingdom? Does it mean that we work hard at our job? Tell you what, if you are seeking first the kingdom of God and you are an employee, you are going to be on time. You are going to serve like you're serving Jesus himself. You're never going to lie. You're never going to steal. You're always going to have a good attitude towards other employees. How many people like that make good employees? That's a good employee. So seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness makes you a good employee. And that's going to help you. You're going to be diligent. You're going to get the job done. And how about this? Does giving, like putting money in the plate and tithing, is that part of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? It's a big part of it. Submitting our financial life to Christ is a very important piece of the puzzle. Now, this isn't a tithing sermon. We're not going to talk about tithing, but I just want to say when it comes to tithing, it's a beautiful thing, but don't feel pressured to get there because if you tithe because somebody's pointing at you hard, it can be a yucky thing. It's, it's turned into a yucky thing for certain people. But when you see the goodness of God, when you submit your financial life to him and you're tithing and you're believing God, some beautiful things happen. I'm, I might tell a story here in a little bit, but it does involve spirit-led giving. I pray for the offering almost exactly the same every time, and that's because we need to learn to hear from God on what we should give. I'm going to ask you a trick question. I trick people with this even though I tell them it's a trick question. 
But here it is. Can you ever really give enough? Yes, you can. In fact, you can give more than you should. God will have a certain amount you're supposed to give, and you should find that. I've given too much before, where you get all excited about the presentation. That's a beautiful ministry. I just, whoa. And you put it in, and the plate goes by, and you're like, oh, that was more than I should have put in there. You can feel it. How damaged are you by giving a little bit more to a wonderful ministry than you should have? That's way better than buying something you shouldn't buy. You know, that's really not that big of a thing. It's, it's a good way to learn to hear from God. So God is not unreasonable. He doesn't ask you to give 110% of your income. It's just, it's not how that works. So you can give enough. You can find that right place. Most people don't. You can. So step one is believe it and do it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Step two, then you will know the truth. What do you learn when you do that? Well, one of the things is when you submit your financial life to the Lord, when you pray before you buy stuff and say, Lord, is it your will that I have this thing that it's only four easy payments of $39.95? Do you want me to buy that? And God will usually say, no, you don't need that. You're just really tired and you need to go to bed. And (laughs) then you don't have to buy that and you can just go to bed. So you save a lot of money because the covetousness falls off and you don't have to buy as many things. You don't have to prove anything to anybody by what you're driving or, or anything like that. You save all kinds of money that way and covetousness starts to fall off. It's an important thing that we learn when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Another thing is financial opportunities can begin to present themselves. That's kind of neat. And miracles can happen. You want to hear some miracle stories? I've got some fun miracle stories. Summer 1993, my wife and I were having some issues in our marriage. And we read in the Bible about how, you know, husbands and wives are supposed to relate to each other. And we're like, man, we're getting this all backwards. Let's switch that over. And so, you know, she told me, we're switching this over. I said, yes, yes, dear. You know, and, and we did that. And so then I had to become the spiritual head of the home and all that stuff. And, and so we started just like, well, that's what the Bible says. That's what we're going to do. And we started, you know, endeavoring to live God's way. And that summer, while I'm in school, I'm whitewashing apartments. You know, that's my summer job. We paid off somehow $2,000 worth of credit card debt. And all of a sudden got paid off. Like, we don't even, still don't know how that happened. That's in the early 90s. We had nothing. I mean, we're buying groceries on the credit card. I'm just painting stuff. And we were able to not just meet our needs and pay our bills, but pay off $2,000 worth of credit card debt just during the summer. That was neat. It was like a miracle. This was cool. So we're living in Bemidji, and we started a church in Big Fork, Minnesota. And we were living in Bemidji, started a church in Big Fork. We're driving. It's like 72 miles. And of course, it's a small community. So you can't be living in Bemidji and having any sort of an impact in a small town. We know we got to live there. Uh, we don't have much for money and we don't have any place that is affordable that we can buy. And so I'm praying, Lord, we got to move to Big Fork. You know, uh, we got to get there. I got a job now halfway between so we can move there and I can keep my job. Help me out, you know, and I distinctly, you know, just in my spirit, not an audible voice, but sell your house, put your house on the market in Bemidji. Like, well, but uh, it's not that we don't need a place to live now. It's that we will need a place to live later. 
you know, in, in Bigfork. So it prayed again. You know, you ever pray to the Lord, like, I don't think you're catching how this is. And you see people do that in the Bible, and you're thinking, how can they argue with God? And then you do it in your prayer life. And nope, put your house on the market. Okay, put the house on the market. Got a full price offer on the first day. Went to work and heard somebody talking about, oh, we're going to lose our house. It's going to be bad. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Like, well, we... We own this farm in Big Fork, and we're having all these problems. We got a contract for deed and a balloon payment. There's no way we're going to make it. I'm like, where, where do you live? Well, we live in Big Fork. You know, I'm like, really? Well, what's going on? They, they had this thing, and they had a balloon payment on their contract for deed. They weren't going to be able to pay it off. And I said, well, you know what? I'd like to help you out. What if I bought your farm and then sold it back to you, and then you could keep it? And they said, wow, that's, that's pretty nice if you did that. I'll give you 40 acres for free. That was the same day. It was the day we put the house in Bemidji up for sale. We couldn't find anything in Big Fork. Then that same day, we get given 40 acres. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing stuff. I mean, that's just God miracles. If you want to know if God does miracles or you want to argue about the theology of it, after he does a few in your life, then the theology doesn't matter anymore. He's just like, yeah, you got to me too late. I know God does stuff. You know, like God is good. So these are the things you learn when you put first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then you see him add things to you. So step three is where we get free. We learn these little pieces, then we step into freedom. God's economy is basically this. That the kingdom work would be well funded by people's tithes and offerings. And that God would take care of his people as they give. And so the people are better off and the kingdom effort is better off. That's good for everyone. That's God's plan. Now, I want to read one more section of scripture. Because as with everything that has to do with the things of God, it starts in your heart. Being free from economic slavery starts in your own heart. And I want to go to Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, to bring this home. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, and he's thanking them for giving an offering towards his material needs. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. The Apostle Paul was content and happy when he had plenty. And he was content when he had nothing. Because his contentment did not come from this world. He knew who he was in Christ. He knew that the most important thing, the most valuable thing in his life was whether or not he was being obedient to the call. And when he was obedient to the call, he had peace in his heart if he had plenty, or if he had nothing. Let me tell you, our God is good. He will help you through difficult financial times. He is a God of blessing, but he's a God that's there whatever your circumstances are. And the first step is always to open our hearts to him 
and be obedient to Him. So let's make sure we're right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's ask Him to help us to see how to be free economically, to love Him first, put His things first, and then trust Him to add those things to us.